Open your Bibles to the book of 2 Corinthians. You've probably noticed, uh, I'm, and I maybe even mentioned this, I'm, I'm holding off on starting another exegetical study of Scripture uh, just because we have a few odd Sundays here through July. We have a few more coming. Uh, again, next week we won't be here. Uh, and we had just some, some things sort of didn't feel like it was ready to, I was good or ready to start another series. And so I've just been doing a few uh, sermons that sort of uh, just allowing the, uh, the Lord to share through me, I think, some things that he's working on. And this is really one of those this week. Um, this is, uh, I'm just going to be, I'm just going to be completely honest with you, completely blunt with you. As I began this week, I began to uh, think, and I had a few thoughts of maybe what I was going to share this uh, today, this morning. And uh, this was not one of them, by the way. This is not, had nothing to do with it. But uh, uh, as I began the week and began to ask the Lord, what is it that, that I should be sharing about this week? Uh, I just began to become aware of something that he is working on in my own life. Uh, seems like the last number of months, and uh, I'm going to just be very forthright with you. Uh, it is a work in process, a work in progress. Uh, I mean, it's always true, right? It's always true, because I've never, I'm, I've, I've not arrived. But I, I particularly feel like this is something that, uh, you know, it, maybe it's not maybe, probably because or most likely because of just of having been a fairly stressful summer. I've got a lot of things going on and I feel like there's a lot of, a lot of responsibility of a couple, a couple of different plates I'm trying to keep going. And there's always responsibility for everybody, but there's always responsibility for me, of course, no, no question. But it seems like it's during those times when things are, when things are tough, right? When things aren't, are, are overwhelming at times or things are that, uh, I don't know, when you get squeezed, then it's the juice that comes out, right? And, and, and you have to take an assessment or look at whether the juice is good or not, whether, whether it's something you want or not. And so this is something that God is just working on. And, and I'll, I'll, we'll share a bit of this. I'll share a bit of this as we go through. And just an awareness. These are things, you know, the first, this is not the first time that I've, you know, read these verses. And probably the verses I'm going to read for you today, 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verses 3 through 6. Not the first time you've heard these verses. And my guess is you've probably heard sermons on these verses already. Um, but I just want to take you along in a journey of things that God has been talking to me about. And kind of just uh, asked me to put out in a, in a message form for you today. A lot of teaching. And so my goal is to not just be teaching, but to give us a chance to apply to our lives. Divine power to destroy strongholds is what I've entitled it. And a little, little fun little story. This is not part of my message, and I probably shouldn't waste a whole lot of time because we've got a lot to go through. But a little fun fact that we sang a song this morning that reminded me of this. Uh, you know, when Martin Luther began to respond to the Holy Spirit and began to read the Bible and began to read Romans, especially because he was just being almost driven mad by uh, this worry that he, how could he know that he's, if he's saved or not, whether he's really truly right with God. And as he began to read the Bible and began to respond to the Holy Spirit waking up in him, he began to realize that his Catholic faith that he had been following uh, was not life-giving and was not leading him to eternal life. And he began to uh, write some things and say some things that went counter to uh, what the church was teaching. And they had, if you've heard of this story, so it's sort of the beginnings of the Reformation of which we are, a, our, our denomination and our, our, our whole culture is a, is a byproduct of. Uh, but that climactic moment where he nailed the 95 theses, uh, his, his beliefs of, of, of who God is and what he wants from us and how we respond to that, he nailed it to, to the church door uh, in Wittenberg. Uh, I've actually seen that, uh, that uh, Catholic church there. And then he became a hunted man. And he... Uh, hid himself in a castle. Now you see in the back of you, I don't know if you can see it very clearly there yet, but uh, you see in the back of my picture there, there's a, there's a uh, castle. And it's actually a little bit like, it's, it's, it's bigger than that, but it's a little bit like that in terms of, I've been to the castle and you, you are driving off and there's, you know, there's mountains and you can look up there and you see the thing sort of sitting up there on top of the mountain. And uh, Martin Luther actually hid himself in a room that I was shocked when I walked into it because it was very, very tiny. I'm talking like maybe a third of the stage size, if that. And he was there for more than a year. I think it's actually a couple of years that now I'm sure he went in and out some, but he was in this little room. And the entire time he was there, he was uh, actually translating the Bible out of the Latin into uh, what is today known as High German. And while he was uh, there in that 
castle, he wrote this song. And this song was called Ein Feste Burg, which means a stronghold or a castle that cannot be moved. And we sang it this morning. Did you know that? A mighty fortress is our God, a bulwark never failing. This is a man sitting in a little 10 by 15 room for days and months on end, knowing that if they find him, they're going to kill him. And he writes those words that we sang this morning. Maybe you should open your book again, not right now because we're going to keep on going, but open your songbook again and look up those words to that song. It's a fitting song for us today because today we're going to talk about the divine power to destroy strongholds. It's almost the opposite because he was hiding inside of a castle, but he knew where his real protection came from, a God who doesn't fail. And we're going to look at it from the other angle because we're going to recognize that there are strongholds, there are castles in our lives that, are, that seem unassailable. They seem impossible to tear down or destroy. They seem like they're, they can't, they're impenetrable. And yet, we'll find out that God has given us divine power to destroy those strongholds. Let's read, because we should be reading the Bible during a message time. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, starting in verse 3, Paul writes these words, For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ, being ready to punish every disobedience when your obedience is complete, or as your obedience is completed is how that reads actually grammatically, as your obedience is being completed. Now, it's probably no secret, the verse that I am looking to define the title for my message is, in fact, verse 4 there, the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. I just took the title out of there. Have divine power to destroy strongholds. And again, I don't think this is news to you, but I want to remind you and I this morning that God has provided, in fact, weapons for us that have this divine power. Divine, of course, means it's not from us. In fact, that's where the whole conversation is going to rest on. They're not of the flesh, but they are divine. They come from outside of us. They come from God, and they have the power to destroy these things called strongholds. Now, there's all kinds of ways to slice and dice the message like this and all kinds of things to accentuate. And certainly, I say this all the time as a disclaimer, certainly I will make no claims that I'll, this will be all-encompassing, that there will not be some things that you can think about during the message time that I'll have missed and you'll be completely right. We'll just clear that up. Nevertheless, we want to make an endeavor to understand the text and to understand what it has to say to us. I want to begin. You have a handout on the back side of your bulletin. You can follow along if it helps you. Take notes if it helps you. If it distracts you, then don't and just listen. The context, I think, is important just so we understand where this is coming from. Now, I didn't read the verse that came before that, but Paul opens up chapter 10. This is his second letter to a group of people that he helped plant a church there. He left, and the church kept going, and it ran into some bumps. And, and we have 1 Corinthians. Uh, we can read through that. We have 2 Corinthians. We can read through that. And then towards the end of his second letter here, he's now facing, or he's answering to this criticism that he's facing, that there are some who would look at him and say that he is operating or, or doing things according to the flesh. He's walking according to his flesh. He's just being a, a, a guy who's trying to exercise control over people and tell them how to do things. And Paul reacts rather strongly to that. He says, let me tell you, don't, in fact, he almost is a bit of a veiled threat because he has this little line where he says, you know, everybody says, I'm really bold when I'm far away and I write these strong letters and you read 1 Corinthians and there's some strong stuff some strong reproof in there about what they were doing. But he said, but when I show up, I'm, 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 I'm a soft guy. I'm not, I'm not as intimidating. In fact, some sort of scoffed him and said, yo, he's, he's a big guy when he's over there, but when he comes, yeah. And he's, there's a little bit of a veiled threat in these verses just leading up before what I just read it because he says, don't make me come there and be bold and prove to you that I am not operating under the flesh or by the flesh. And then he proposes this kind of word picture, something actually Paul does in several other letters. But he goes to a picture that I, I think he's, he says, I want to help you understand some things about myself, about how I do things, but how all of us do things. Because when Paul does this, it's how it works, right? He's talking personally for himself, but it's instructive to us as we walk and live the Christian life. 
And he says, I'm going, to t- I'm, I'm going to give you a picture, a metaphor. And he goes to the battlefield to give this metaphor. As you read through the verses that we read, uh, you see there's, there's some, some battle sort of metaphors being made. Interestingly, in our Sunday school this morning, there was some battle metaphors being made, right? To contend for the faith is to fight for the faith. But here he says, I don't walk according to the flesh, but I am waging war. It's not the flesh's way, it's not the body's way, but I am waging war. And we have weapons, and we're in a fight, and we're destroying, and we have strongholds, we have castles. By the way, the picture there uh, that I'm using is actually something that Paul might have had in his mind as he wrote this. Paul is from an area uh, known as Cilicia. It's in modern-day Turkey along the southern coast there. This is a picture of an actual ancient castle along the cliffs of the coast of Cilicia, close by to where Paul's from. The Roman Empire had to spend much time and sweat and blood in tearing down these strongholds as they came to take over the lands that were there. This probably is one of them, by the way, that they did that to. Imagine, now you don't get the full picture because I had to zoom in uh, so you could actually see part of it, but you imagine, this is on a cliff and the water is right like out here. Imagine trying to uh, take over a country when you're coming by water, for example, now they could have come by land too, but when you're coming by water and this is waiting for you and you have to try to somehow scale that wall and get over the other side and, and, and take over the enemy to make it yours. Now he uses this picture intentionally because he's trying to get us to understand something. What you and I see as impenetrable, as unassailable, as, as cannot be gotten through, cannot be broken down, cannot be moved, or is, is, is this, this, this fortress that cannot be shaken or broken through. He says, but listen, God has given us divine power to destroy these kinds of strongholds that are in our lives. And it doesn't happen according to the flesh. I'm not using weapons. Now, one hand you could say, well, I'm not using grappling hooks and cannons and battering rams and things like that to break that down. We understand there's a perfectly biblical story to illustrate what he's talking about, right? Kids all sing songs. It's one of the first stories they learn, right? Joshua fought the battle of... How did the walls come down? Battering rams, grappling hooks, cannons. Tell me what kind of divine power destroyed that stronghold. This is the picture Paul is trying to paint for us in context. But I want to make sure we're paying attention to what these verses say. And there's a bit of a double-edged thing going on here because certainly some of the strongholds we're facing uh, are, are out there, so to speak, where we're, we're assailing territory or, or conquering territory out there. But quite frankly, the message is coming to you today not from a perspective of that, but it's a perspective of the strongholds that are in here that God has given us divine, divine power to destroy. I can tell you from Jesus' conversation with his disciples that he's a lot more concerned or he wants us to be a lot more concerned about those than he does about us claiming the other territories out there. Now, he wants that to happen, but he knows that's only going to happen when they're being taken care of here first, right? That's why he uses language. Jesus actually used language like, you know, things like beams and specks, right? Taking a beam out of a brother, or taking a speck out of a brother's eye when you have a beam in your own. Let's not... Be so quick to talk about the strongholds that are, appear unassailable out there until we recognize which strongholds have been fairly impenetrable in here. He has given us weapons of warfare that are not from the flesh, and we have to pay attention to this because many times we're trying to tear those strongholds down with our own weapons of flesh. We're trying to to pull ourselves up. We're trying to make ourselves right. We're trying to restrict ourselves. We're trying to, uh, to, to, pr- to put up the shields around ourselves. We're trying to, by our strength, overcome the habits and the sinful things that we have in our lives. And God is clear. The Word is clear. Paul was clear. The Holy Spirit this morning is clear. We will not tear down those strongholds with weapons of the flesh. 
but by the divine power that he's given us. Now, I want to just start focusing in on this word stronghold a bit, because if we're going to talk about the subject, we have to recognize or think about what the strongholds are. And contrary to what we may think as a pretty wide open thing, he actually gets pretty specific or narrowly focused. Now, he's not, he's not naming them specifically, but he gets pretty narrowly uh, nearly defined as to what he's talking about when he talks about strongholds. And I know that because the very next verse from what I have up there is he says this, we destroy arguments and every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Now I want you to see the, the, the literary connection that's made because he ends verse four with these words. We have divine power to destroy strongholds, to destroy strongholds. The very first words of verse five is him defining what those strongholds are because he says, we destroy. You see how he's connected that together? He said, we have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy. So whatever he's going to say next are those strongholds. Does that make sense what I'm saying? Whatever he says next are the strongholds. And here's what he says. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions that set themselves up or raise themselves against the knowledge of God. You see, we tend, we tend to say, well, these unassailable strongholds are these places that the enemy, the, the Satan, has just really, has just really, you know, come against us or has really, has just really trapped us or has really bound us up. And Paul, I mean, I'm not saying the enemy's not involved because I have, uh, I, I'm quite certain the enemy is very involved, actually. But Paul is not saying Satan is trapping you. He's saying these strongholds, are the arguments and the lofty opinions, the things that we think about God that are not right. The ways we think we know God that are incorrect. The ways we think we understand who God is that are false. The arguments that we might have as to why God can or cannot operate in a certain way. Or the opinions we might have about what he wants from us and how that should look like and how that's not right or that person. All of those things, they become strongholds. And you know why that's true, right? Because when I begin to think a certain way about God, if it's wrong, I can no longer respond correctly to him because I am thinking incorrectly about it. Because when I begin to think, I begin to respond out. I begin, it begins to come out. Now just hang with me because we're going to find places where uh, it, it, it has to do with our hearts too. Actually, it has a lot to do with our hearts. But primarily the thing that Paul is, is addressing here are the things that are happening right up here in our brains as we think about who God is and who we are and that relationship that we have with him and all of those things. Let me just walk us through some things. And this is, again, not an exhaustive list, but some things that I think uh, ways that we have strongholds that become these fortresses that... Uh, we cannot get around. First of all, I think there's willful ignorance in our lives at times. To be willfully ignorant means we know that there's an answer out there, but we don't want to find it. Are you listening? When we know that there are answers there, we know that we can go find someone who can help us understand, we know that we can discover more about something, particularly about who God is, but we don't want to go there. Have you ever had a moment in your life where you are pretty sure you know that there's ways you could experience God or know God or to enter more into God's presence, but you know if you would do that, you'd have to give something up that you don't want to? Now, I know it's not very fun to, you know, admit that or acknowledge that. We're sitting in church, so we put on our Sunday faces and say, oh, no, I don't... But I think this environment here in this room here with the people you go to church with is, in fact, the best place for you to be honest about what's happening. There are times when we are willfully ignorant because we don't want to know more because we know if we know more, we're responsible for it. And we think we can argue the point that if I don't know it, then I don't have to. What do you, how much water is that going to hold when you stand before God? <laughs> how much water is that going to hold when you stand before God? On top of willful ignorance, I think, is the other side of that coin. 
which is when we do find out and we reject it. We do hear the truth and we say, ah, that can't be. Neither here nor there, but we had a very, very interesting, I, I, I thoroughly enjoyed discussion in our Sunday school class this morning, talking about contending for the faith and talking about people who uh, are, the, are out there with, you know, hateful messages, well, not, actually hateful, with, with, with bold messages of you're going to go to hell, you, you, you're, like, you, you're, all, you're all destined for the wrath of God is kind of yelling at people. You know, you've seen those people with signs. And I think an important discussion for us to have about the validity of that and the recognition that that, for most of us, goes against our grain and we don't like it. But is it better to be quiet? Again, I think there's open for discussion. I'm not making any, maybe I'm going to start a whole conversation here with all of you because I'm sure you all have your opinions about that. But finding out the truth, hearing things, we are actually right then, right? Because then we are responsible for it. We have to answer to that. We're either going to accept it or we're going to reject it. I can tell you, I can tell you from my own life, I can tell you from the countless numbers of people I've talked to in my my. My job, if I want to call it that, in what I do as a pastor, I can tell you there are so many and so very real instances of people who discover something about what God wants from them and do not want to do it. And the, the huge, impossibly unassailable fortress that gets developed out of that. The huge blind spot, the huge opening for the enemy, the huge bondage that comes into their life all because there's something they realize that God wants to them and they reject it and don't want to do it. They don't want to yield to it. And it's like brick after brick after stone gets built and suddenly there is a giant fortress there and they say, there's nothing I can do. I can't get rid of this. I, I can't break. Even if I want to now, it's impossible. Well, it's actually not because of the text we had this morning, but that's what it looks like. Perhaps one of the strongest warnings I ever, ever, ever want to give to my church and to myself is to be oh so very careful to not harden our heart to what God is saying to us. I can tell you there have been so many times in my own personal life where it's been some little thing over here and I think it doesn't affect anything else around me. And I wake up one day six months down the road and why am I having this this frustration, this struggle over here, and the God leads me back to this point back here where I rejected something he told me that I thought had nothing to do with anything else. I don't know why it works that way, but I can tell you it does. Let's keep going. I think often we are filled with biases. We are filled with prejudices. We think that God has to operate a certain way. We think this is who God is. Think of, think of how, and this is, these are real examples, people, from, from, from people I've talked to. Some of you, perhaps, I'm not pointing out anybody because I have lots of conversations with lots of you. Not all of you are sitting here in this room that, that this may be true for, that I've had these conversations. But it's so common for when we begin with a bias that God is, I'll give you an example. We begin with a bias that God is love and therefore, like, if that, that, that means that God will never allow anything unkind to happen to us. Notice how immediately there's a fortress being built because I'm thinking wrongly about God. So the moment something bad happens to me, what does that do? I no longer will believe in God or I'll become angry against God or I will think that uh, I, I have never understood God or have re never received God or that all kinds of things all because I began with a prejudiced or a biased viewpoint of what it meant that God is love. This is real, friends. This is what's happening in our lives all the time. All kinds of times when we have strongholds built because in our heads there's these superstitions or these places of, of, of idolatry. And this is pretty vague in general, by the way. I suspect that um, someday when the veil is torn and we will see perfectly as we are perfectly known now, I suspect that we will be shocked at how much superstition we carry in our lives. You know the word superstition where you, you think certain things go a certain way. If I don't do it this way, you know, we scoff at that. We think that's for, you know, backwards, third world country, you know, types of people who are all concerned. 
I'm telling you, a lot of things that we, I think, write off as cultural markers that we say, well, this is what a culture does. I mean, maybe they weren't that way originally, but they end up being, in some ways, superstitions that we have to do it this way. If we don't do it this way, then this, this, this is what happens. This is the result of it. All of that, honestly, is idolatry because it's giving, uh, it's attributing uh, ownership or, or influence over you that belongs to God to something else other than God, which is idolatry. One more, I think, that is huge for us, certainly as uh, intelligent, first-world Americans who have all the access to all the education and all the learning and all the good stuff that we know and can figure out is quite frankly one of the biggest fortresses we face, I believe, are these things called logic and philosophy, knowing how things work and wanting to, having studied humans and knowing how human, humans are and knowing what all these things. And all those things can, they don't have to. I'm not saying these th that's bad necessarily, but I'm a very logical guy but I can tell you right to your face that there are plenty of times when my logic, my sense of logic has made me miss God because it doesn't make sense. It's not logical. I think A should follow B, and so if it doesn't, then I think something must not be right. But our own understanding of things and our ability to figure things out messes with us, doesn't it? Well, this is all very theoretical, right? <laughs> this is all very out there things. So, what if I were to just give you an example from my life from this week? I told you I'm feeling some stress in my life and have lots of things going on. So, just this week, this happened actually more than once, which is why I began to think about this even more. You know, my children come and they want, they, they want to tell me something or have something, they want me to be, you know, want me to, come pay attention to something or take care of something. and I'm busy, right? I think I even used those words with my children this week where they were doing something and I had to come correct something or take care of something and, I, and it came out of my mouth. Like, I'm, I'm too busy for this. I got stuff I'm doing in here and you guys are out here and, 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 I'm, and I'm getting upset. I'm frustrated. I'm angry. And I go back in my office and I sit there and I realize that there's a lie that I'm believing, Right? There's something in here in my head that I'm believing that my time spent in my office doing whatever thing I was doing is more valuable to God than what I was doing with my children out here. And the longer I believe that lie, the more I build up a fortress in my own life to where I don't have time for my children or for anybody else, and I'm justified in being angry at anyone who would dare to step into my precious time of the things that I have to get done. To be very honest with you, quite frankly, I realize that most times when I'm angry about something, it's because I'm not thinking something correctly. It's, it's, I'm elevating myself and my importance and what I have to do, and I'm devaluing whatever else is going on, and it's a bother to me, and it's not right. And to my children who are here this morning, I think they all are, I'm sorry about that, because it's not right. Whatever I have to do is not more important than you, for sure. But it's this lie that I'm believing about who God is, what he wants from me, what I'm, what, what I'm supposed to be doing, how to respond to him. I'll tell you, I sit, walked back in my office and I sat there, and what do you think the first thing is that went through my head? You know, I work in word pictures, so I sit there. I'm trying to get back to my all-important work. And I see Jesus with his disciples and his disciples chasing kids away and saying, hey, he's got more important stuff to do. And Jesus saying, hey, come on, guys. Let the children come to me. That's where the kingdom of God is at. Now, that's one very real specific example from my life. And I share that with you, just to be honest with you, to hopefully help you apply it to your life. And I share that with you to let you know that I don't have this perfect, right? I have my own fortresses. I have my own strongholds that build themselves up in my life. But I'm also doing it to get you to a place where you can honestly answer the question this morning that you need to have answered in your life. What are the strongholds that are in your life that you're not thinking correctly about God on right now? That you're not understanding God correctly and it's causing you, it's starting to build this stronghold, this fortress that is going to become impenetrable if it's not already, at least from your perspective. You know, I'm one of those people that thinks that uh, the best person to answer that kind of question is God himself. And so I'd like to just ask him, and I'd 
think if you're willing to ask him, you should ask him too. Father, we pause in the middle of our message and we invite you to speak to us by your Holy Spirit. Those of us who are in this room and who sincerely want to honor you and follow you, if our hearts are ready this morning, we simply want to ask you that question. Is there something that I am not believing correctly about you, God? Is there some logic that has gotten in the way? Is there some bias I have, some prejudice? Is there some idolatry in my life? Is there something you've shared with me that I have been rejecting? Or am I willfully ignoring something because I don't want to receive? I, I, I'm afraid of what you're going to say to me, and I don't want to explore that. And so I'm, I'm holding back. I've said, no, I don't want to know. In any of those, is there something that is being built up as a stronghold in my life this morning, God, that you want to tell me about? Here we are listening to you. I would encourage you, church, brothers and sisters, I would encourage you that if something has come into your mind, that you write it down on that piece of paper you have in front of you. There's actually two words Paul used in this verse. We destroy arguments and lofty opinions. And there's something I want to draw your attention to as we look at this list. I told you there's all happening up here, but I told you it involves our heart too because in the end, a lofty opinion is an opinion that is lifted up. Something that is, that is elevated beyond where it should be. And let's be honest, many of our opinions are pretty lofty, aren't they? We're elevating them to positions they shouldn't be. The root of all of this in a sense, it's true because the root of almost everything comes down to this, but the root of all of this, friends, comes down to this word that you see on your screen right now, which is pride. It is us thinking we know God or us thinking we have God figured out or us thinking that the way we understand God has, is more or greater than what it really is. Those fortresses that are being built are because of our arrogance and our pride almost always in some way. It may come out in lots of ways where people can't tell us anything or how to do things. But I want to just share a few scriptures with you that show us that we are not unique. We're not alone. But what, is, what we're talking about is really, truly happening among all of us. When Paul opens his book to the Romans, his letter to the Romans, he talks about coming to see them. He talks about the righteous living by faith. And he begins to talk about God's wrath for the unrighteous. And he says this in Romans chapter 1, verse 21. He says, for although they, talking about people who, are incurring the wrath of God. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but be they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. You notice there's very intentional words that Paul uses. They knew God, but they did not honor him as God. We talked about a few of those things, right, on that list of strongholds. They knew God, but they did not honor him as God. And then look what happened. What's the first thing that happened? You read the screen. You can read that. What's the first thing that happened? They became futile in their, in their what? Yes, they're thinking. Are you awake out there? These are the, he has given us divine power to destroy strongholds. Those strongholds are the arguments and the lofty opinions that have lifted themselves up, have raised themselves up against God, that were thinking incorrectly. And Paul says right here, he walks it backwards. He says, though they knew God, they did not honor God as God, and they didn't thank him, which means they became futile. They became, they, their thinking became wrong. And when their thinking became wrong, their foolish hearts were darkened, and they could no longer see or understand God. And it became this, this snowball that just went down. And you read the rest of chapter 1. It's a scary picture. It's actually a picture describing much of our culture around us today. By the way, these guys that he was writing to were not the first ones. If you go way back in the Old Testament to the people of Israel and them and Moses coming in front of this guy named Pharaoh who was the most powerful man in, the, in, the, in, the, in that region, certainly probably in the world at that time. And what does he say when Moses says, hey, God came and said, you should let these people go. They're my people and you should let them go. And, uh, and Pharaoh says 
in Exodus 5, 2, who is the Lord that I should obey his voice and let Israel go? I do not know the Lord, and moreover, I will not let Israel go. You see, the stronghold that's built in Pharaoh's life, he doesn't know God, and he doesn't think there's anybody bigger or greater than him. He thinks himself as a God. In fact, we're just going to continue that through because we're going to come back to the New Testament. When Paul writes his second letter to the Thessalonians, he begins to talk about this man that he calls the man of lawlessness. Most of us would refer to him, as it does in other places in Scripture, as the Antichrist, the man of lawlessness. He says this about him, which is a good summary. This man opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Now there is a pretty good summary of all of those, that list of strongholds I just listed, right? Willful ignorance, rejected truth, bias or prejudice. I don't know if I can think of the last two. Who wrote them down? Superstitions and idolatry and... Sorry, all of you said it at once. I couldn't understand any of it. Logic and philosophy, right. All of those things find their root or their problem in the fact that if we are putting ourselves in the place of God, then we've missed it, right? That's where the stronghold starts. That's why it becomes a stronghold, because it becomes impossible for us to see things any other way because we have the answer, because we have the right understanding, because we know how this is supposed to work, or we don't want to hear anything else about it. Paul would write these. I'm going to flip here so I can read these words to you. 1 Corinthians. He opens up with chapter 1, and he says words like this. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 18. For the word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing. Notice that we're going to see things backwards here. We're going to see what we've been reading in these verses, that those who either didn't know God or didn't want to honor God or put themselves in the place of God. And here we're going to see the, the other side of how, how Paul sees that the, these things are opposed to each other. The word of the cross is folly to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it's written, God says, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through the wisdom, through wisdom, it pleased God through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. For Jews demand signs, Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Oh, and then he goes on. For consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to the worldly standards. Not many were powerful. Not many were no of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that no human being might boast in the presence of God. There you have it. Why did God do all this thing? Why did he say that his, what, what appears as foolish to us is actually the wisdom of God, what appears as, as wis, wise to us is actually foolishness according to God? Why did God do that? I just read the answer. So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, who became to us wisdom from God, righteousness and sanctification and redemption, so that as it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. I'm wondering if someone could get me a glass of water. My throat's... Uh, <clears> throat> Gotten a little scratchy there. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. Well, I gotta keep moving because our time is moving on rapidly and there's so much thing, so many things I'm gonna cover yet. What appears to be wise to us, can we just get this straight? What appears to be wise to us is often not wise. Are we okay with that? I mean, you didn't seem all that convinced. Let me just tell you from, from my perspective up here. You didn't seem all that convinced that you're okay with that. God has given us weapons, but they won't do us any good if we're not, if we're not okay with it. If that's not our perspective. If we somehow think that we are going to have the answers, the rest of the sermon may as well not be preached. Hopefully there's a few of you among us. I'm certain there are. I don't mean that to be in a negative way. Where we recognize that God has given us weapons that have divine power to demolish strongholds, and we want to do these things. Let me just walk through these weapons. The first one, I think, is the most important. I think it's the one that's inarguable. I think it's the one all the way through Scripture. I think it's the only answer we truly have, and that is the presence of God. In the presence of God, strongholds fall. I re referenced the story of, uh, of Joshua in the Battle of Jericho, right? 
But uh, what was at the front of that procession as they marched around the, 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 the city? What, what was in the front? It was the tabernacle. It was the Ark of the Covenant. It was the presence of God dwelling there among them. Now, you notice, if you know the story of the Old Testament, thank you, Mitch. Appreciate it. If you know the story of the Old Testament, that got them in trouble, right? Why did it get them in trouble, by the way? Think about it. Think about, think about the lesson. Think about the text today. Why did it get them in trouble? They got in trouble because they began to think, well, if we got the ark with us, we're going to win, right? That it, it has nothing else, to, has, has to do with nothing else, but if we have the ark with us, we're going to win. They began to think themselves wiser than God. They began to think they had it figured out. They began to use logic, right? Well, every time we take this in, we win. So forget what God wants. Forget what he's telling us to do. Forget what anything else. Forget where our hearts are at with God. Forget obedience to God. Forget anything. If we take this with us, we're going to win. And God showed them that's not true. You see, for the presence of God, this is why I said what I said at the beginning. For the presence of God to be powerful in destroying the strongholds out there, the presence of God must first be here in demolishing the strongholds here, which is what wasn't happening for them. Then we talked about the Holy Spirit. We actually I talked about this just in one of the recent messages here. But the Holy Spirit, when God uh, shared through the uh, prophet Ezekiel about what the new covenant was going to be, he said exactly those words. He said, I'm going to put my spirit inside of you, and that's when you're going to be able to walk as I want you to walk. That's when those strongholds come down. Because he recognizes strongholds of, that, that make us walk afoul of, of, of what God wants. Those things that we build up in ourselves as, well, I can get away with this. Well, this isn't so bad. Well, th those people are worse. So I, you see, those are all things I'm thinking wrongly up here, right? Any moment I'm thinking, well, mine is not so bad as someone else's, or this isn't that big of a deal, is me thinking incorrectly, right? You still with me? Still want to agree with me? The presence of God is what tears down those strongholds. When we come into his presence, we recognize how very wrong we are. How very foolish we were to think that way. Remember the man of lawlessness that Paul wrote to the Thessalonians about? The one who put himself in in God's place? Remember that? Just a few verses later, uh, I didn't put it on the screen, so I'm going to have to flip there. Just a few verses later, he says this. Verse 8, and then the lawless one will be revealed, whom the Lord Jesus will kill with the breath of his mouth and bring to nothing by the appearance of his coming. So what's going to be the factor that changes this lawless man who will be able to do all kinds of things and have all kinds of power and rule and dominion? Read the book of Revelation. All kinds of things and all be over with just, by, just like that because of what? Because Jesus showed up. Because Jesus showed up. It's, it's no different in our lives, friends. Things change in us when Jesus shows up. And they will not change if Jesus isn't there. We can do all we want. We can put all kinds, we, we, can, we can strap ourselves in, we can bulletproof ourselves, we can put bubbles around us, we can put everything we want to to try to keep us on the straight and narrow. Those are all analogies I'm using. It won't change unless Jesus shows up. It's the presence of God that changes what's happening in us and around us. Now there's a few other things that work along in conjunction with the presence of God that I think are worth mentioning this morning. Take th things, for example, like the Bible, because one of the weapons that God has given us is this book right here. What, I mean, let me just say it this way. What can give you and I a better understanding or better knowledge of who God is than this? We can experience him, but we all know that our feelings can lead us astray sometimes, right? So we need to couple not that we should not experience it, by the way. We need that. And feelings are involved. We need those too. That's part of who we are. But we couple the experiences we have with God with reading about who God is and how he interacts with us and what he wants from us so that we know them to be the authentic experiences of the presence of God. This is why Paul wrote to Timothy, right? All scripture is God-breathed, and it's useful for things like rebuking and teaching and correcting and training in righteousness. That sounds a lot to me like tearing down strongholds in our lives. Rebuking, correcting, teaching, training in righteousness. That sounds a lot like tearing down strongholds in our life. That's what the word of God is useful for. Avail, let's avail ourselves to it. Let's have it, have its work and effect in us. 
By the way, I would just tell you that uh, you know, the, Holy, uh, the Holy Spirit, God's presence in us is what illuminates this to us and helps it have that power in us. So it gives the living, breathing, two-edged sword capacity of the Bible is God's presence. So when we are not in God's presence, reading this and knowing all about God is completely different than knowing God as we're reading this. Similarly, I think the biggest surprise, but prayer is huge in this, right? If you want the presence of God and you want God to do change something in your life and tear down a stronghold, it means spending time with him and asking him to do exactly that. It would be foolish of us, I suspect, if we were to lament the strongholds and the bondages and the things that aren't right in our life and wish them to change and not go to the most powerful creator God that exists and ask him to change that, right? It would be foolish of us, and yet it happens all the time. Jesus gave us that picture, right? He said, when we pray, it's like the guy who goes to his neighbor's house in the middle of the night with his guests and bangs on the door until the door's opened, right? That's prayer. That's us coming to God and saying, there's a fortress in my life that I cannot get rid of, but you can. Will you please? And one that we may not think about very much that I think is equally important given what the word says itself is the church. I think one of the weapons that God has given that has divine power to destroy strongholds in our lives is the church. It's why Paul, when he wrote his first letter to the Corinthians, he said, hey, when you're all gathered together, that's when you, and the spirit of Jesus is there, that's when you expel an immoral brother and you say, you hand him over to Satan so that while his body may be destroyed, his soul could be saved. The church has a function. The church's function is largely being written off in our individualistic American culture, by the way, where we think we can have our own access to God and we don't need anybody else. The problem is we're cutting off all these avenues. All of you who have an ability to look at my life and see things that I will never see because of my bias and prejudice and my lofty opinions and my heart that, is, that wants to elevate itself and sit on the throne itself. You can see that and I can't. So you have to be the ones that see it and help me see it and say, brother, it should not be like this. In all of this, I put up this word pride before, but in all of this, you look at all of these, when you come into God's presence that has a very, uh, a very natural way or a supernatural way of humbling us, right? When's the last time you came truly into God's presence and remained unaffected? did not feel humbled? When's the last time that you came into God's presence authentically and you just, you were like, oh man, I've got this. I would tell you if that's ever happened, you did not come into God's presence. There's a universal response that happens in scripture and in lives of the people that talk about it when you come into God's presence and it's all pretty much the exact same way. It is a falling down on our faces before him and recognizing how undone we are. These things the Bible, prayer, the church, and certainly coming in the presence of God, they bring us to a place of humility, which is the opposite of the word I put up there before, right? They bring us into a place of surrender. They bring us to a place of submission. And that, I, 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 there, there's just no other way. This is where the message is leading. You know this, right? This, you, you know this, right? This is where the message is leading. That is what tears down strongholds is submission, is surrender, is humility. Because if pride builds it up, it is only humility that will tear it down. It is only recognizing that I have missed it. It's only recognizing that I don't know everything. It's only recognizing that it is my arrogance. It's only recognizing that I'm putting myself on the throne and I ought not to be. It's only recognizing that God is the one who is supreme and sovereign and can do things however he wants to. It is, as Paul wrote to us in the words I read to us, It is bringing every thought captive to obey Christ. Friends, I've said this. I've said this so many times, and I'll just say it. Refrain, 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 refrain. Let's get rid of the notion that freedom in Christ means we can do what we want to do. Look at these words. The goal in tearing down strongholds, which is holding us captive, is so that we can now, what? Have every thought be captive to Christ. The sooner you and I get rid of the notion that we are, can be free and do what we want to, the better off we'll be. The more positioned we'll be to actually walk in the freedom that Jesus has for us. 
You and I will have a master. Are you okay with that? You and I will have a master. God has given us, during these days of, of grace, he's given us an opportunity to determine who that master is going to be. But it will either be yourself or some other things out there in the world, or it will be Christ. We destroy strongholds, not so that we are free to do what we want to, but we destroy strongholds so that we can now bring every thought captive to obey Christ. We have so much we can read yet this morning. I want to just share with you what I think are the results of a life that has allowed the divine power of God to destroy those strongholds in us because we talk the things that are happening up here that we're not thinking correctly about God, that we have missed the mark on. I want us to see the evidence, the results of a life. And uh, there's a lot of scripture. I'm going to try to run, uh, I'll read through it. I'm hopefully going to try to not make us... Uh, as, as many comments about it, because I'm fully confident the Word of God will do its work, the Holy Spirit will do its work. First thing I want to say is when we have allowed the divine power of God to destroy the strongholds inside of us, then we will truly see ourselves become a living sacrifice. There's a phrase I just borrowed right out of Scripture. These are not things I'm coming up with myself. These are not some cute little catchphrases or some little buzzwords I'm trying to bring to you. I'm trying to get you to see what the Word of God says. Paul wrote this, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. And look at what he says next. Do you know these verse, this verse? Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed, how? By the renewal of your mind. Notice how that ties to what we just talked about today, the subject, those, those, those strongholds we're talking about. Be transformed by the renewal of your mind so that, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. If you want to do what God wants you to do, which is taking every thought captive and obedi in obedience to Christ, if you want to do what God wants you to do, it requires you to be a living sacrifice, which requires you to humble yourself and surrender to God and say, you have your way inside of me. You demolish those strongholds so that I can be renewed in my mind, think rightly about you and about myself and what I, why I'm here and all those kinds of things, and then I will know what is that good, perfect, pleasing, acceptable will of God. We will not only become living sacrifices, we will become ambassadors for Christ. Paul has already addressed this in 2 Corinthians. Let me just read a few verses because he spends time helping us to see that we are ambassadors for Christ. We're supposed to be the ones making the appeal for who Jesus is to those who don't know him. And then he goes ahead and uses some language to demonstrate how he has been that. Listen to this and see if we find anything of ourselves in these verses. This is 2 Corinthians chapter 6, starting in verse 3. He says, We put no obstacle in anyone's way, so that no fault may be found with our ministry. But as servants of God, we commend ourselves in every way. And here's how they commend themselves, lest you think this is a thing of pride. This is how he commended himself. By great endurance in afflictions, hardships, calamities, beatings, imprisonments, riots, labors, sleepless nights, hunger. Should we put a sign-up list outside the church for this? But look what he goes on to say. By purity, knowledge, patience, kindness, the Holy Spirit, genuine love, by truthful speech and the power of God with the weapons of righteousness for the right hand and for the left, through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise, we are treated as imposters yet are true, as unknown and yet well-known, as dying and behold we live, as punished and yet not killed, as sorrowful yet always rejoicing, as poor yet making many rich, as having nothing yet possessing everything." This is what happens when we allow God to destroy strongholds in our life and we begin to think correctly about him. We become ambassadors for Christ and that's the result. Do you understand why I said at the beginning there are times when we don't press into God because we don't want to know what that's going to require because we read things like this. And we'd rather be rich and fat and happy. But the weapons he's given us, he mentions these weapons. They're not the weapons we might think of. They're weapons of truthful speech and the power of God. They're weapons of righteousness. Do you know what the most powerful weapon you have in convicting people of who Jesus is? Is you and I living righteously. Who can argue with that? Who can tell you that you got it wrong? 
Oh, they can try. That's why you have that last phrase. Through honor and dishonor, through slander and praise. Treat it as impostors that are true. That's why you have that whole last phrase. They can try, but you can't argue. That, <laughs> that is when Christ is reigning in us and we live righteously, that is the castle that can't be moved. But we have to get there, right? That's the presence of God. Thirdly, I'd like to just keep moving, and we're not going to read all these verses. You're welcome for that because it's a long thing. But you should. You should go this week and spend time, like a lot of time, like maybe every day of this week with these, these verses. Because when we allow the divine power of God to destroy the strongholds in our lives, we actually become imitators of God. Did you know that? We become imitators of God. Paul wrote about this when he wrote to the uh, Ephesians. Now, we know the end of this section, which we often might think of when we think about this kind of uh, message and, and the divine power to destroy strongholds. We think about the armor that God has given us, right? The breastplate of righteousness, the helmet of salvation, all those things. That's at the end. That's uh, Ephesians chapter 6, verses 10 through 18. That's the end of it. But you understand that that section begins a lot further up in the book than that. In fact, I would suggest, you could maybe even go to the beginning of the book itself. I would suggest you certainly beginning in verse 17 of chapter 4, because Paul says, now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, listen to this, in the futility of their minds. You see the constant connection, the constant coming back that Paul is making to how when we don't think rightly about God, we don't know God rightly in here, when our mind is not transformed, then we do wrong things because we think we're justified. When I get angry because I think that my time is precious or more precious than whatever else, then I'm thinking wrongly about who God is and about who I am, and I respond incorrectly. He says in verse uh, 1 of chapter 5 that we should be imitators of God. That's where I got the phrase from. Imitators of God and beloved children and walk in love. And as he goes on describing what I believe is the life of a person whose strongholds have been torn down by this divine power of the presence of God and the Bible and prayer and the church around him, then you see things like husbands and wives with right relationships with each other. That's starting coming in verse uh, chapter 5. You see things like children who obey their parents. You see things like, like, well, he says bondservants and masters, and we could talk about that. Or many times for us, we think things like employee-employer relationships who are godly and righteous. And, of course, we see the armor of God. I'm not going to read all those. I suggested to you, if you would be so kind, you could read them and spend time meditating on them. I want to share two more because I think they're going to conclude us here. I believe when we have the divine power of God, the presence of God, the Bible, the prayer, prayers, uh, our prayers, and the church of God around us, and they're destroying those strongholds, we're allowing, we're submitting, we're being humbled, and destroying those strongholds in us, then we are ready for the day. And the day, of course, is capitalized. Peter wrote these words, 2 Peter Chapter 3, he talks about how all these things are going to be destroyed, how the, the, the world and everything into the heavens, it's all, it's all stored up for, for fire, kept until this day. And he says in verse 11, since all these things are thus to be dissolved, what sort of people ought you to be in lives of holiness and godliness? There it is again, righteous living, doing what God wants us to do, taking every thought captive to make it obedient to Christ. In lives of holiness and godliness, waiting for and hastening the coming of the day of God, because of which the heavens will be set on fire and dissolved, and the heavenly bodies will melt as they burn. But according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Again, when you're not thinking correctly about God, you even reject the notion that this is ever going to happen. Did you notice? Did you see? Did you understand how that works, right? When we don't think correctly about God, that he's holy and that he will judge sin, then we, don't even, we can't even accept the fact that God is going to do what Peter just said he's going to do, destroy heavens and the earth completely. But we'll be ready for that day. In fact, I'm just going to let that roll into the next point, which is that we will receive the crown of righteousness. Paul wrote these words. This is in 2 Timothy chapter 4. I'm going to flip there so I can read them for you. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 6 through 8. He says... I can flip my page one more time. Oops, I'm in First Timothy. That's why it didn't make sense. For I am already being poured out, Paul says, as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. And then what he says, look what he says. I have fought the good fight. It goes right back to that analogy we, he began, we talked about in Second Corinthians. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I have kept the faith. Henceforth there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will be award to me on that day. And not only to me, but also to all who have loved his appearing. Let me make that connection for you, just real solid. A life of humility, of surrender, of submission before God, in the presence of God, a life saturated with the presence of God, with the Bible, with prayer, with the church, 
that life will be a living sacrifice, will be an ambassador for Jesus Christ, will be an imitator of God, will be ready for the day of Jesus' return, and will in fact receive the crown of righteousness when he does return. Let's not pretend that those strongholds don't exist in our lives. Because that is the quickest way to not get any of these things. But when you and I are willing to acknowledge, and maybe you wrote something down today, you and I are willing to acknowledge that there is a stronghold there, the next step is to be willing to follow those, uh, those weapons, to take up those weapons. Allow God's presence in you. Go seek after God's presence. Read what the Bible has to say. Pray. Surround yourself with brothers and sisters who will be honest with you. And you'll allow them to be honest with you. And watch the strongholds come crumbling down. God, thank you for your word this morning. There's so much here.